We're starting something new today. Uh, we've, uh, this is kind of the, the second of a new beginning, as uh, Brother Eugene mentioned. Uh, we began a, a morning service, an Alpha 830 worship service. It was really exciting. We had a great time seeking God. Um, that's mainly for those who are, are serving and doing different things during this time slot. Uh, we're also beginning a new sermon series here, and I want to um, help us because I think this is going to be extremely uh, significant and important for the way that we live life and the way we, we do life. Um, and again, as I prayed, I, I pray that we would have ears to hear what God would say uh, to us this morning because this is important stuff. The Word of God not meant merely for inspiration or information, but meant for transformation, and that's uh, every part of us desires that. Every part of us believes that this is what God is wanting to do, and every time His Word is preached, He is present. And when he's present, he's powerful to be able to change lives. Uh, and I believe that. And I believe that with all of my life. And I pray that you would as well. Uh, we used to, uh, during spring break, uh, which just passed for some of us in Orange County and Seminole County, over spring break, uh, we used to take a group of people uh, in our youth ministry and, and some college and singles and other folks out to uh, the inner city of Tampa. And we used to do an outreach trip. Uh, we used to do a week-long outreach where... We had some, some partners in ministry who were connected with uh, different homeless shelters and different rehab centers and, and, and had connections in, in different housing projects and government-funded uh, homes. Um, we'd, we'd partner with them to see how we could serve and incarnate the love of Christ in places like that. So we would, um, you know, we'd go into uh, neighborhoods where, if you look on wiki places, there's a place called Robles Park, right? And, and uh, we'd type in Robles Park in wiki places and user-generated data, and they would say, shady place where people get killed at night. <laughs> we're like, that's the places we're going. It's kind of crazy. Uh, we would knock on people's doors, and they would say, what are you guys doing? You guys don't look like you belong in this neighborhood. And we'd say, oh, we came from Orlando to, to live out the hope of Christ. And they would say, where are you going? They we're going to Tampa Park. We're going to Robles Park. And, and they would just look at us like we're crazy, and they would say, you brave. That's what they would say. You guys brave. And then they would uh, have us do whatever. We'd knock on homes, and we would uh, take out their trash. We would ask them if there's anything that we could pray for them about. Um, we would cut, uh, cut weeds. We would cut down trees, whatever we could do in order to help people and love them in the name of Christ. Uh, we would uh, boil hundreds of hot dogs, and then we would pass them out to people in parks. We would, uh, we would tutor kids who are underprivileged, who didn't have uh, like a big brother, big sister program. We would have block parties and, and do all kinds of stuff like that. And one of the things that we did is we would uh, go into homes that were identified by our ministry context as people that we really want to invest in, really want to believe in them and begin to pour into their lives. Um, a lot of them would be single mothers who were uh, off of drug rehab, gotten, gone through rehab centers and trying to get their lives back together. And remember this, uh, for about this one three or four day stretch, we went into this one lady's home, uh, again, single mother in this dilapidated home in this broken down neighborhood, and uh, we introduced ourselves to her. She had connections with our guy, and she knew who he was, and, and so he said, these guys are here, and they're going to take care of you. They're going to take care of your house. Um, he said, go in there. There's paint chipping everywhere. There's mold everywhere, so I want you to take your, your, your uh, whatever those, mach- those tools are and just chip away at all of the, the busted paint, uh, scrub off all the mold, and once all that is gone and you've got a flat coat, then we're going to go and we're going to paint it these bright, beautiful colors in order that she can basically have a new home. And I remember some of our middle schoolers were saying, why are we doing this? We could be telling people about what, you know, these Bible stories. We could be uh, praying for people. We could be giving out gospel tracts. We could be tutoring them. Why are we just painting this lady's house for three days? Aren't there better uses of our time, better things that we could do with our time? And as we're talking, our, our, our connection there, he said, you know, you, you um, have to realize what you're doing here when you go into this lady's home. 
Okay, this lady grew up in this broken neighborhood. She grew up with this broken life. Her life has been, been messed up. She's been abused. She's gotten uh, abused drugs. Um, she's finally trying to get her life back together. She got a job. She's, you know, off of drugs. She's clean. Um, but every time she comes home from work at 6 o'clock in the afternoon, she comes home to this broken-down building that all she remembers when she looks at this home is her old life, her past life, her broken life, all of the mistakes that were made and all of the failures of that life. What you're doing when you're coming in is you're giving her a new home. You are rebuilding her home, and when you're rebuilding her home, you're not just rebuilding her home, but you're restoring hope to her life. What you're doing is so much more than a mere cosmetic change. You are spiritually, emotionally, and in a holistic way, you're giving her a new lease on life. This is what you're doing when you're rebuilding the places of her home. This morning, I want to begin an 11-week journey towards hope, where we can rebuild the broken places, the hopeless places, the dark places, the fearful places, the places that remind us of yesterdays that are broken and that are hurting and that leave us bad taste in our mouth. I want to help us to rebuild by looking at the true story of a rebuild that happened 2,500 years ago from the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look here, Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to rebuild together because I would dare to believe that for as couple hundred of us in here, that there are a couple hundred of us who have broken down places within our lives. There are places where hope has been lost, places where there's dilapidated brokenness, places where we look at our lives and we don't think that out of these ashes anything good can come out. I want to rebuild and I want to restore hope and I want to resurrect hope within us through the power of God's word in order that we can dream of a better day together as we look into Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah was kind of the Bob the Builder of the Old Testament, one of them at least. Uh, he was a rebuilder of broken places and we're going to uh, read Nehemiah chapter 1 and over the next 11 weeks we're going to basically go a chapter at a time and then we're going to kind of speed up the pace when we get to the end of it. Uh, but this might be a good thing for you to do as you read the Bible throughout the week. Maybe some of you are used to doing this, you can add into your Bible reading uh, a chapter of Nehemiah each week so that you can have heard it by the time we come in here on Sunday morning. If you don't usually read the Word of God, uh, this would be a good place for you to start. Okay, read, ask God to understand it, and then we'll come in here together and we'll kind of unpack it together. This is Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read it. This is kind of his journal of his rebuilding experience from about 445 years before Christ. Um, this is what he writes, and then I'll give some introductory thoughts, some, some context to it. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of, of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love <clears throat> with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. 
We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. This is Nehemiah's journal here. What's going on here? What is the rebuilding that needs to take place? If you remember, he praises this uh, great prayer reminding God about the covenant that he made a long time ago. God made a covenant with a man named Abraham, said, out of you is going to come a nation which we call Israel, the people of God. Israel was going to become this great nation. And so under Moses, they became a nation with laws. They went into the promised land through Joshua. They kind of had their spiritual high moments and low moments. And then they said, finally, we want a king to lead us so that we could be like all the other nations. And so God said, The whole intent, the whole purpose was that I would be your king, but they said, no, God, we want a human king. We want a king like all the other nations. And so you begin to see the Israelites starting this decline into becoming like the other nations. First king is a man named Saul. He starts out with some good intentions, but he ends up doing some some shady things, and he falls off. And then David rises up. And one of the things you realize about the, by and large, about the Israelite kings is when the kings were moral and upright and following God, the nation was moral and upright and following God. But when the kings were immoral and did not follow God, then the nation did not follow God. And so it was the second king of Israel, the greatest king, King David, led Israel to their high point, their pinnacle, when they were a, a people after the heart of God. After David died off, his son Solomon became the king, and he would be kind of the last of the lineage of the strong kings, at least in the unified Israel. Because after Solomon, whose heart was divided, remember he had thousands of other women in his life, divided heart led to, in the next generation, a divided nation, right? Divided nation this way. So in in bringing judgment against the people of God, Israel and Judah were divided. So the northern kingdom was ten tribes in the north, called Israel, and the southern kingdom was two tribes in the south, called Judah. So God kept telling his people, if you're faithful to me, then you'll receive blessing. If you're unfaithful, there will be devastation. But the people of God would hear, they would repent, they would come back to God. But it came to a point in time where the northern kingdom was just living in, in, in outright idolatry. And so in the year 722 before Christ... God brought judgment to the northern kingdom Israel through an even more evil group of people called the Assyrians. So in 722 BC, the Assyrians come and they ransack the 10 northern tribes of Israel and they're wiped out forever gone. All that was meant to show the judgment of God, but also to show the southern kingdom Judah, guys, this is what's going to happen if you don't get right with God. And so for these different, uh, for a number of decades, the people of Judah tried to get right with God, and then they would fall, tried to get right with God, and then they would fall. And in time, the Assyrian Empire fell and gave rise to the Babylonian Empire. And in 586 BC, 140 years after the northern kingdom had fallen, God sent Babylon to destroy Judah. So the Babylonians came, and they just wiped out, destroyed, ravaged the city of Jerusalem. The temple was burned down. And it became uh, basically a ghost town. 
It became this, if you, the way I described in the first service, we talked about the book of Eli, where there's ashes and there's ruin everywhere. There's nobody living there anymore. And the people who were living in Judah were deported and taken as slaves to Babylon. So in 586 B.C., the people of Judah, God's people at the time, experienced the darkest night of their soul as they're taken away from their homeland and into the evilest of empires, the Babylonian Empire. Even in the midst of that exile, like God would raise up prophets who would tell the people of God, listen, guys, this is not a permanent thing. If you come back to God, then you will go back home. Right? You can go back home and you can rejoice and you can live again in the land that God has for you. And so sure enough, the Babylonian Empire would fall and would give rise to the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire, you remember the movie 300? These were the Persians, right? So in, three, uh, 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 in 539 B.C., the Persian Empire rises, and a king named Cyrus rises to power, the most dominant kingdom in the ancient world. And so unlike the Babylonians who said, we need to rule with the iron fist, the Persians said, the people who are our slaves, they're actually going to be better subjects to us if we let them be happy. So in 539, Cyrus says, you guys can go back to Judah as long as you pay taxes to us and you're supportive of the Persian Empire. And so a small group of people go back as the first remnant of those going back to Judah. And over the next 100 years, three groups of people would go back to Judah. The first one, beginning in 539 B.C., led by a man named Zerubbabel, the second one led by a priest named Ezra, and then the third one in 445 B.C., led by this man here, Nehemiah. So what was it that he was rebuilding, and why was this rebuilding so important, and what does it have to do with our lives here in the year 2018? Three things I don't want to show us here. The first thing is this. Rebuilding starts when you realize that you're sitting in ruins. Rebuilding starts when you realize that you're sitting in ruins. It's interesting because Nehemiah has never been to Judah. He's a Jewish person. He's an Israelite, but he's never been there. But for some reason, his heart desires to know what's going on amongst his people. And that's a question he's going to ask to his messengers who come back. You know, it's, um, back in the day, um, I, I had a friend. His name was Caleb. His Korean name was Yungyu. Uh, he was a, a friend of mine, and he grew up in Korea. He grew up in Korea. And um, in the time that he was growing up in the countryside, they didn't have toilets. They didn't have uh, flushable plumbing and things like that. Uh, in many places in Korea, it's still like that. In some places where... Uh, in, in developing nations, uh, a commode, a toilet, is basically a big sheet of plywood with a circle carved out so that you could either stand or sit on it, and then you would do your business in there. And all of the fecal matter and all of the urine, <laughs> sorry if you're new today, this is what we talk about, uh, but it would collect down there in this like cesspool of nastiness. And so uh, one day, my friend Caleb, Yungu, and his family was, was eating dinner, and they had some relatives over. And uh, for a while, they realized this is eerily quiet. For an 18 to 24-month-old little boy, uh, he was yapping away. He's not here. We don't hear him. What's going on? And so they started looking around the house to try and find where he was. They realized <clears throat> they couldn't find where he was. So they sent out uh, different people to go looking through uh, the parts of the home and parts of the, you know, the neighborhood to find him. They called out his name, and they couldn't find him until finally, after a couple minutes of, of looking, they heard the voice of their little toddler calling out, from somewhere that did not seem to be ground level. 
As they got closer and closer, they heard Caleb, his voice coming from the commode. He had fallen into that pit and was sitting amidst the poop with poop in both hands, holding it up, showing his mom, look what I found. They said, get out of there. What are you doing? He had this big old smile in there. He was in no hurry to leave that place. His mom said, get out of there. What was his problem? He didn't realize what he was sitting in. And because he didn't realize, he was in no hurry to get out of that place. And a lot of us may be sitting in a place like that. In fact, that's what Jerusalem was like. Jerusalem was sitting in ruins, and they didn't even know what they were sitting in. Here's Nehemiah. He finds out. He inquires. This guy, Hanani, comes back, questions him about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile. They said, those who survived are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. Why? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. This was the situation in Jerusalem. In fact, the, 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 the sad thing, the saddest thing about it is that that had been the situation in Jerusalem for 150 years. The walls had been torn down. The temple had been burned down. It was a ghost town. It was blackened, but nobody cared about it for all of these years. And as Nehemiah looks at that town, as he looks at that, as he hears about the city, the first thing he thinks is, doesn't anybody care about what's going on in Jerusalem because the walls have been broken down. What's the big deal about walls being broken down? And what's the big deal about Nehemiah trying to rebuild these walls? Because in those days, you understand that the walls are the only thing that would protect the city. The walls are the only thing that would protect the city from invaders, from marauders, from, the, uh, from warring enemies, from other nations that came and tried to ransack their city. It doesn't matter if you had an army. If you don't have walls, the army is useless. And so when the Babylonians came and they attacked the city, the walls came crumbling down, and for the past 150 years, Jerusalem was defenseless. Proverbs 25, 28, it says that a man without self-control is like a city without walls. You have no self-control. There's no discipline. There's no defense. You're left at the mercy. It's complete anarchy, and it's complete chaos. And a city without walls means that the invading nations are coming in and they're having their way with Jerusalem. Can I ask you a question this morning? How are the walls in your life? Have the walls in your life been destroyed so that there's no defense for your heart, for your life? Are enemies attacking you? without defense? Are they having their way with you? The problem, if Jerusalem does not have walls, is that the identity of the people of God is being invaded and is being stolen away from them, and they're becoming just like those around them. They have no gospel identity anymore. They have no identity as a people of God, and they're left defenseless to do whatever it is that other people are telling them they ought to do. And a lot of times, this is how we live life. A lot of times, this is the people of God. The walls have been broken down. 
Our lives have been broken down, and the question is, does your heart break over the walls that are broken in your life? Because here's the most damning thing about it to Nehemiah. It's that people see that, but they don't care about it. They see it, and they're okay to sit in the ruins. Rebuilding will never happen unless we begin to see the ruins upon which we're sitting. And the question that he asks and the question that we ask this morning is, do you see the brokenness in the life, in the situation? Do you see the walls have been broken down and that the enemy is having his way with you? Here's how you know that your identity as a child of God is no longer being guarded and protected. You're becoming just like the people around you, and you don't care that this is how you're going. That you don't care that your life is addicted to drugs and addicted to alcohol. You think it's normal that you get drunk every weekend, even though you're a child of God. That's a problem that Nehemiah sees. He says the walls have been broken down, and the question is, do you care that this is your life? Do you care that you have no gospel identity, that all of your hope for satisfaction is found in the arms of another lover, is found in the affection of people, rather than in the applause of God and what he thinks about you? That you have such a sense of of low self-esteem that you give your heart to any boy or any girl who gives you attention because you think that's what's going to give you a sense of worth. Do you realize that your walls have been broken down and your life is reflective of that? Do you understand that that the way that we're living is not reflective of the people of God? This is what it means that our walls have been broken down. That there's no defense anymore. That we're becoming just like the people around us. That you're fine doing things that you know are wrong, that you knew were once wrong, that your teachers have told you are wrong, that your leadership, that the word of God tells you is wrong, but you're fine doing it because you think as long as I have the right people telling me that I'm somebody, this is what it must mean to really live. Do you care that your walls have been broken down and that you're living this kind of a life? Does it matter to you? Because this is he's not just talking about his own life. He's saying, as I look at the people of God that I care about, as I look at my family members, what's the first thing that you see when the walls are broken and the people are defenseless? Do you get angry at them? When you see that your child is caught in pornography, what do you do? Do you spank them? Or does your heart break over the fact that they're giving their lives to lesser lovers? When you begin to realize that the people that you care about are, are, are messing around and compromising their values, does your heart break or do you immediately just want to go and correct them? What is the feeling in your heart when you realize that the walls are breaking down? Nehemiah says, do you see that? Do you see that you're living in ruins? Do you see that your, your students, your fellow classmates are living in ruins? And what do you do when you see that? Is your heart broken over that? He says, I sat down and I wept over it. When you look at your house, church, you look at the people, the things that are going on, do you take ownership over the spiritual lives of your people? When you see things happening in our church that are not becoming of the people of God, what do you do? Do you keep talking about it? Are you cool just gossiping about things and, and saying this is the way it is? Are you okay with being okay with walls being broken down? Because rebuilding will only happen when we realize that we're sitting in the midst of ruins. Do you see, honestly, can we take an honest look at our lives, at our marriages, at our ministries, at our relationships? Are you willing to see the places where the enemy has infiltrated your heart, and are you okay with that? Because Nehemiah's not. He says, I sat down and I wept over the brokenness of my people. 
Who's weeping over the brokenness of our church? Who's weeping over the brokenness of sinful lives that have been hurt because of idolatry and sin and shame? Who's weeping over these things? Because the first thing that we see is that rebuilding starts when we realize that we're sitting in the midst of ruins. The second thing that we see, the second thing that we see, that rebuilding trusts that only God can make tomorrow better than today. Only God can do this. I hope at the very least that we're beginning to identify, you know what? There are places in my life, there are places in my family that are desperately in need of rebuilding. There are people in my circle of friends that need to be shaken out of this place where they're just sitting in ruins. There are people that I care about whose walls have come crumbling down and they no longer live as if they're children of God. When you see these things, where do you go? What do you do next? Because the first thing that Nehemiah does, and verse 4, when I heard these things, he says, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Literally, it's saying this is four to five months. Well, he just sits and, and he just goes before God and he prays. I'm going to paraphrase something that a woman named Corey Ten Boom might have said in, a, in, a, in an earlier time. She said, when you look at the broken walls in your city, you might get distressed. When you look at the broken walls in your own life, you might get depressed. You look at the ways that you've compromised in order to get the approval of men, in order to get the approval of boys, in order to get the approval of women, whatever it is, when you've compromised yourself, given yourself to, to things that you know aren't right. You look at yourself, you might get depressed. But what Nehemiah tells us to do is look to God, and there we find our rest. First thing that Nehemiah does is he realizes, man, this brokenness, it's not simply a brokenness of walls that need to be rebuilt. This is a brokenness of the people that need to be rebuilt. Walls will be built in 52 days, you'll see that, but a people cannot be rebuilt in 52 days. A church cannot be rebuilt in 52 days. Your spiritual lives cannot be rebuilt apart from God in prayer. And unless you believe that, then you're going to go to lesser sources of help in order to try and fix the brokenness in your life. And people do that all the time. You find out, hey, you know, this thing is going on in our church. This thing is, that thing is going on. The first place I'm going to go, I know exactly who to talk to. I'm going to talk to that person. I'm going to talk to this pastor. I'm going to talk to that counselor. All that is great. But you have to understand that the only way that your tomorrows are going to be better than today is if you fall on your face before God and you realize that God alone can do this. God alone is the author and orchestrator of rebuild, revival, renewing, reconstruction. He alone can do that in your broken family, your broken life, your broken relationships. Some of us know that. You've seen that. You realize that, and you realize that when I, when I went to God in fasting and prayer, things changed. When I did all these other things, things didn't change. You see it on both ends of it, but how long until we actually begin to take these things to heart? It's not about paying lip service to prayer, guys. Unless you see it, you don't know it until you know it. You don't know it until you show it. 
what Nehemiah understands is that history is always going to be made by the intercessors. History is always going to be shaped by people on their knees who are praying. This is the way that history is made. The only way that tomorrows are better than today is not by people just trying harder. By people realizing that we can't. It's the Gideon principle that God will take 300 of God's people over 100,000 people of the enemy. And he will use to highlight the weakness of people to highlight the strength of God. It's a couple pieces of, of, of bread and five poor man's fish in order to feed 5,000 people to highlight the emptiness of our efforts, but to highlight the strength of God and what he can do. And he, our, our nation is in shambles spiritually. I don't care what you think politically, economically, that's all spiritually. Do you understand that we're in need of a revival unlike any time in the history of our nation? And if we don't, then in 30 years, there's going to be no churches here in America. That's our reality. And it's not going to come because we have slicker preachers or, or greater PowerPoint presentations or better praise teams or, or, or cooler songs. It's not going to happen that way. Spiritual battles are not fought without spiritual weapons. Your children, I, I say this all the time once I started having kids, our kids are not going to have a church unless we begin to realize the ruins that we're sitting in right now. Your grandchildren are not going to have a church to sit in unless we do something about this at a spiritual level. And when we grow up and we're, we're, we're old and graying and we're 90 years old and people talk about there used to be a church, this great big building used to be a church where spiritual things happened. And your great-great-grandchildren ask you, so what did you do about it? What did you do? How much did you pray? If God really in the, in the Bible that it's people who pray that change the world, what did you do about it? I hope to God that we can say I did something about it. That I did something about it. I didn't just let a generation die. I didn't sit there watching the ruins like they did for 150 years in Jerusalem and say, oh, well, I'm going to sit in the midst of my crap playing with it and smiling because I don't understand the stuff I'm sitting in. Unless we begin to realize the gravity of the situation, we're not going to do anything about it. And unless we go to God and realize that he alone is the one that can make tomorrow better than today, then I fear for what we're living in and the bed that we're going to sleep in because we sleep in the bed that we make. And we're making it right now by the choices that we do and we do not make. History lies with the intercessors, though, guys. You begin to pray. You shape history, and you'll see this. Nehemiah begins to pray, and in a period of 52 days, this wall, which had not been rebuilt in 150 years, is rebuilt. Do you see the ruins in which we sit right now? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? People of God, child of God, servant of God, leader of God, what are you going to do? We see the brokenness. Whose responsibility is it? Nehemiah is so far removed. He's 800 miles from the situation, never even been there. And his heart begins to weep. He says, these are my people. This is my land. I've talked about this before, but when I think of the one person I think about who's causing the most echoes in eternity, who's shaping history, when her life is done, is going to have impacted life on earth and life in heaven more than anyone I know. It's this lady that we call uh, Miss Kim. It's all, her name is Yudong Kim. She lives out in the Midwest. 
She's about 70 years old. She's frail. She's thin. She spends half of her weeks, half of her days fasting and praying for God's revival in our nation. She's part of a church. She's just, she's just a, 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 a lay person. Uh, and I've preached at her church, and she won't pray for people like me because she says, I'm just a lay person. I can't pray for a pastor. That's, that's your responsibility. But she prays, and she prays, and she prays. And out of their church, man, God is raising up so many people. Half of their budget goes to support missionaries. And they have raised up so many missionaries from their church that they can't even support all of the missionaries that want to come from their own church, even with 50% of their budget. History lies with the intercessors. About 30 years ago, when I was about 10 years old, I remember being a youth group student in Virginia. And I remember going to church every week because after our PGIF, is what we call it, a Friday night meeting, Praise God, it's Friday. Afterwards, there's a school, Henry David Thoreau Middle School, right behind our church. We'd rent out the church, and we'd play basketball for two hours. That's why I'd go to church, be excited. Let's just get through this singing stuff, Bible stuff, and let's go play basketball. And I remember these shifts began to happen where um, the prayer times would get later and later. And I'd, I'd, I'd ask people, are we still going to play basketball? Like, I don't know. It doesn't look like we have time anymore. And I get really sad. But these shifts began to happen within the culture of our church where people who would come to church dressed in all black and white clothes so that they could go to church and then hit up the clubs afterwards started coming in normal clothes. And they would come in and they would just start praying. People would come and they would have packs of cigarettes in their cars, got rid of those cigarettes. People who used to listen to, to Led Zeppelin, heavy metal stuff, would start listening to Christian music in their cars. No CDs back then, just audio tapes. But they would listen to that. They would burn their rock and roll music because they said this is not honoring to God and I remember then people stopped coming to church for social reasons I remember times where my brother would be like there's this girl named Amy there's this girl named Annie there's this girl named Lena I got a crush on all of them and then all of a sudden people stopped coming for that they started coming because they wanted to experience God they wanted to see Jesus they wanted to meet with him and I remember being this like 10, 11, 12 years old, and I was going through that, and people would, would tell me much later, there was this revival that happened in the late 1980s in the Washington, D.C. area amongst these Korean-American churches, and my mentors and my leaders would tell me, they should share their testimony. They, it was during this period, and all of them came out of that time. They got saved. They got called into ministry. They followed God, and they would breathe dreams into people like me and my generation and out of that, man, the ripple effects, people that I've seen after me go into the ministry from that area, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And those who know will say it all goes back to this one prayer meeting in the late 80s where that lady, Miss Kim, got a group of people together and said, this Washington, D.C. area, you get D.C., you will change the world. And they fasted and they prayed for 40 days. Lord, revive D.C., revive D.C. And at the end of that 40 days, there was this, this weekend revival in Maryland that just kicked everything off. And after that, nothing has been the same. I long for that. I long for people who will see in this area, God, what could you do? When I moved down here 17 years ago, 
I said, guys, I, I told people in Virginia, I'm going to a land that's ruled by a mouse, but I don't want people to come and think about Orlando as being, this is a, a happening place for entertainment. I want people to think this is a place where God reigns, where there's revival that happens. I said, I want to give my heart, I want to give my life to this. That's what I want from our church, that things happen within our church through the power of God in prayer that no one can explain, that no one can say it's because they have a great worship team or because they've got a great pastor or because they've got great people or they've got a great building. I want there to be things happen in our church because we're fighting for the glory of God on our knees because we believe in our heart of hearts that the only way that rebuilding happens, the only way that tomorrow is going to be better than today is if God is in the midst of it and he's in the center of it. That we would fight, and this would be seen by our prayer meetings being packed with people. That we give up what, whatever it is that we think we, we need to have in order that we could fight for the glory of God on the battlefield of every human heart that happens on our knees. That we wouldn't be okay just being okay as a church. That we wouldn't be okay just saying, hey, we're doing pretty good things. we got another service. we got this great building we've been in for a year. That we would long for so much more than that. That we want to see streams of people coming to know Jesus. People who are strung out on drugs. People who are addicted to lust and pornography. People who, who can't keep their, their hearts from compromising to idols. Bowing before Jesus in sweet surrender, and the glory of God reigning over our area in ways that we've never seen before. Rebuilding trust that God alone can do this, that he can make tomorrow better than today. Last thing that we see is that rebuilding will come with a price, and your comfort is a down payment. We're not going to go into this prayer. Maybe uh, during prayer meeting this week we'll talk more about it. But he says in verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Can I ask you, have you ever mourned? and wept over the brokenness of sin in the lives of people that you care about and love? Have you ever wept and mourned over the brokenness of your house church members, or your Bible study members, or our youth students who are giving themselves in compromise to the things of this world? Has your heart wept over your children as they go wayward and wandering from the fold of God? Here's Nehemiah. He weeps and he fasts. Who do you think are the kind of people who will bring revival and rebuilding to a nation? Maybe you think it's someone like the pastors, the shepherds, the priests. Who is Nehemiah? It says at the end, very last thing it says in chapter 1, it says, I was cupbearer to the king. You know what that means? It means he bore the cup of the king. Right? This is what he does. Hey, I'm Nehemiah. I hold the Yeti for 
Artaxerxes the king. It's very interesting what he does. It's more than just, hey, I need a drink, I'm thirsty, come and, and you be my glorified water boy. So much more than that. A few years ago for Father's Day, um, for Father's Day, our, our, our kids and some other kids within our, our church wanted to, to have a uh, Father's Day meal and make some steak for some of the dads. And so um, we had this little dinner at our, at our home. I came home on Sunday afternoon, uh, opened the door, and I was greeted by these little people. Uh, our young, our, at the time Elijah was, I think, uh, two or three years old, and, and then a couple other uh, of the girls were there, and they came running, and they said, stop right here. There was a sign that said, please wait to be seated. And so they came, and they got us, and then they seated us at the table, and they said, here's your menu, Happy Father's Day. And we looked at the menu, and it was this, like, fixed menu. It was like, you know, your asparagus is going to come, your drink options, and, and your steak. And they said, how would you like your steak? And like the medium rare, and, and they're really excited about it. And as we're eating these appetizers and eating these sides, we're building anticipation for the main course, which is a steak. And I was so excited to eat that steak. It had been a long Sunday, and uh, my little server came out. It was uh, Elijah, our little boy, and he was as excited about that steak as I was. And as he was carrying that steak out, as he turned the corner, I saw him stick out his tongue, and he licked my steak from one side to the other. And then he gave it to me, and he said, mm, good, Daddy. I said, thank you, Elijah. I guess what he was doing in that moment, he was making sure that my steak tasted good, and it was to my liking. If he was a cupbearer, not only would he be tasting it, but he would be making sure that my steak was not poisoned. Because in those days, if you wanted to assassinate a king, you would poison the wine that they were drinking. So here's what Nehemiah would do. He would get the wine, and then he would drink it. And if he was okay, then the king would drink the wine. And if he didn't, if he wasn't okay, if he died, then the king would obviously say, oh, that wine was poisoned. I won't drink that. Obviously, this was a position of high trust. The king's life depended on Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah's lifestyle was reflected, was reflective of the position that he had. Artaxerxes, the great king, he's not drinking some you know, cheap old wine that someone just happened to, to get. He's drinking the best stuff. And Nehemiah is getting that also. The most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom is not going to be eating beef jerky, right? He's eating the best of the best, and this is the lifestyle that Nehemiah was living. How did he get that place, that position? Uh, this is what the scholars say. Artaxerxes had a dad named Xerxes, and that king uh, one day uh, vanquished his queen and brought in another queen, a Jewish young lady named Esther. And it was the stepson of Queen Esther who became the king. And quite possibly through those connections, Nehemiah became the cup bearer to that king. So having someone who is passionate about the Jewish people, about the people of God, in such a position of honor for such a time as that. But here's what Nehemiah is saying. This is my position, but I'm going to give all of that up in order that I could rebuild the broken walls of my people. He understands that for the walls to be rebuilt, there's a price that needs to be paid. And he said the first price, the down payment, to show that I'm going all in 
is I'm going to give up my comfort. I'm going to give up my position. I'm going to give up my honor. Well, it says he fasted. In those days, fasting is not like what we do today. If we say, you know what, I'm going to fast. I'm going to this intermittent fast. I'm not going to eat for a few hours. It wasn't just like, hey, I'm just going to stop eating. In those days, especially in the court of the king, feasting is more like it. This is what you do. Every meal is a feast. It is a communal affair. The family gathers. Everyone gets around. It's not just about physical sustenance. It's about your social network that you've got here. So when Nehemiah fasts and prays over a period of four months, Right, chapter 1 to chapter 2, it's a period of four months. He's saying, I'm cutting myself off from all of my worldly entanglements, and I'm going to go and I'm going to fight for the rebuilding of the walls of the people that I love so that we would no longer be defenseless against the enemy, so that not only would our walls be rebuilt, but our spiritual lives can be rebuilt. And the question that Nehemiah poses to us, are we willing to pay a price in order that our people might be rebuilt. If you're a parent, are you willing to pay a price that your children could be rebuilt in the house of God? As a leader of a church, are you willing to pay the price? And the first price is always comfort. What would happen if we began to set aside our comforts? What could God do to a people, to a family, to a house church, to a youth group, to a youth ministry, to a church, to a nation, if we begin to take ownership over it. This was, not his, this was not his deal, but he said, I repent for my sin and my father's sins. I confess that we've done wrong, even though he didn't do wrong to directly affect the, the, the walls of Jerusalem. But he said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this because I care about this city, and I care about these people, and I care about the church. Do you see the ruins? Because here, if we do, and we trust God, then we're going to sing, let the ruins come to life. They will. They can. But it starts with us. See, Nehemiah wept over Jerusalem. And about 455 years later, there would come another prophet who looked over the same city, Jerusalem, and all cities after And Jesus Christ also wept over that city. Said, though I sit at the right hand of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, I'll come down and I'll weep and I will mourn and I will fast and I will pray and ultimately I will pay a price, not just my comfort, but with my life. And Jesus died in order that rebuilding could happen in broken lives like ours. We experienced that. We've received that. And he places that call upon our lives. Will you be a rebuilder of the broken walls around you? Do you see it? Do you trust that God alone can do it? Will you go to the mat and fight for it? Because if you do, there's no limits to what God can do through you. There's no limits to what God can do through our church. No limits to what God can do through a church that's set apart for him. May we be that kind of a church. Let's pray. Let's pray together for a couple moments right now. Let's ask the Lord God that he would move within our hearts. Let's ask the Lord that he would help us to see the way that he sees. 
that he would help us to see the situation around us. Can we take a moment right now just to pray? Do you see the broken walls in your life? How you've compromised your identity as a child of God? Do you see the broken walls around you in our church and in our world? And are you willing to fight on your knees in prayer that the ruins might come to life? Let's take a few moments right now just to pray to the Lord, prayer of commitment, of consecration. Lord, I need you. Let's repent if we need to come back to God. If you need to come back to God, people have been more important than God. Things have been more important than God. Stuff have been more important than God. Let's come back to him. Let's spend a couple minutes right now praying, and then I'll continue to lead us through this time of responding. Let's pray together. our situation in your own heart. Are you happy with the life that you have now? Let's just be honest and evaluating our situation. Some of us are doing really well. We praise God for that. Let's pray for more of God's grace. Maybe others of us, our walls have been down for a while. We need God. We need his intervening in our lives. Just be honest with him. I need you. I don't want to live in this way. God, would you help me? I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to you. Lord, help me. Let's pray that for half a minute. And I'm going to pray and then we're going to continue to respond by coming to the communion table. us in our ruins. Thank you that you don't keep us and leave us there. Thank you that you don't just pull us up from that place, but Jesus, you entered into the ruins. And you became ruined for us. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to honestly look at our hearts that you would help us, that you would be our rebuilder of our own walls and lives so that then going forth as agents of rebuilding, we might be the repair and the restorer of the things that are broken in our world. Would you help us? We love you. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.